Oh, good morning, everybody. It is very nice to see you all. Um, for those of you joining us online, yesterday the church was closed just because of the weather, and apparently the boiler stopped. And so the boiler was not on this morning in this part of the building. We didn't notice until it was a little later on in the morning. And so it's freezing in here. Um, the boiler is on, so the heat is coming, but we'll all be in our coats um, right now until we get all that warmed up. So I'm glad to see you all. I hope that you all stayed safe in the cold weather. I'm sure any of you watching online from places north of Texas will find that funny, but it was cold. It's very cold. And as a Floridian, this is why I live in Texas, is so we don't have to do this. And yet, it came anyway. So I hope that you all are nice and safe and warm in home because it's not warm here. Let's, just a reminder that we've got the Women of St. Michael event that is happening at 11.30 and registration happens just before that. And so we will finish here a little early, 11.15, so that any of you who are going to that Women of St. Michael event can get right on over into the church for the speaker. So we will end at 45 minutes instead of the normal hour today. Let's start with a prayer and we'll jump in. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Gracious God, as we are reminded of the way the world can make us uncomfortable, we ask that you open us up and you help us to anchor ourselves, anchor our identities in your spirit. Be present with us and fill us up that as we study your word, we can become more and more the people that you created us to be and to help extend your love here on earth. Be with all those we hold in the silence of our hearts and our minds, especially those who need your healing touch the most. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So today's lesson, we have chapter 10, and we've got three parts to today's lesson. Oh, I should also note that we received a few questions this week. Thank you for those. Because it's an abbreviated class, we're just going to skip over Q&A today. We're going to do that next week. Um, and so if you have any questions either from last week or from this week, send them on to us. We'll collect them all for next week. Um, for those of you just joining us, know that the boiler has been turned on. It just wasn't turned on earlier this morning, so the heat is coming. So keep your coats on. Today's lesson, chapter 10, will be in three sections. The first section, we're going to talk about Jesus as the shepherd. Section two, we're going to be talking about Jesus as the good shepherd. And then section three, we're going to talk about Jesus's rejection. And so we're going to jump right on into the beginning of chapter 10. This story in chapter 10 follows directly after the stories that we heard in chapter nine. So even though we've got a new chapter, just remember that chapter designations and verse designations, that's a modern construct in the Bible. It is meant to do nothing more than help us refer to a specific section of the Bible. And so the initial authors, they did not divide up their story in chapter and verse. And so sometimes we get chapter divisions like we have here between chapters 9 and 10, where the story does not end and start something new. This is a complete story that continues on. So essentially, the first half-ish of chapter 10 is really the end of the discourse that began in chapter 9. And so as we are thinking of chapter 9, remember the healing of the blind, the man born blind, what is happening at the beginning of chapter 10 is still a result of and happening right together with all of the things that happen following Jesus healing the man born blind. 
And so as we jump into the beginning, what Jesus is trying to do is help the people understand who he is, what he's doing, why he was sent, and what things like healing a blind man is all about. And so Jesus offers an image, an image as a shepherd. So because the crowd is still not clear about what's going on, Jesus creates a parable, in a sense, about the shepherd. And he structures this parable, this image, in three specific ways. He talks about this being a shepherd. He talks about what a good shepherd actually is. And then he talks about what the messianic shepherd is. And so that's kind of the progression that Jesus takes us through with this shepherd imagery. So let's start right at the beginning of chapter 10, and we'll talk about each one of those steps. Chapter 10, verse 1. Jesus said, Very truly I tell you, anyone who does not enter the sheepfold by the gate, but climbs in by another way, is a thief and a bandit. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes ahead of them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. They will not follow a stranger, but they will run from him because they do not know the voice of strangers. Jump to verse 7, this end of verse 7. I am the gate for the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and bandits, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters by me will be saved and will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. So we'll pause there. Why is a shepherd image being used as an image for Jesus or for a good king? Let's talk first about, sorry, I'm keeping my hands in my coat, and I realize it's difficult for me to talk without my hands. Um, so a sh let's talk about shepherding in general. Shepherding is not the kind of work that is done casually. It is a genuine commitment to be a shepherd. If you think back 2,000 years ago, shepherds would lead their sheep out into the middle of nowhere. This was not a little pen in the city. This is not a barn off a farm. This is wandering through the wilderness. This is open area. And the shepherd would guide the sheep. And they would live with the sheep. They would really know the sheep. And the sheep would know the shepherd. And so when Jesus uses this image of the sheep hear my voice and the sheep know me, they don't follow someone else because they know my voice, all of this stuff, the people at this point in time would have understood what Jesus was talking about because shepherding was something that would have been known and it's something very personal and it is a commitment. You don't rotate shepherds easily. And so caring for sheep is very similar to like caring for people or caring for students. If you think about a teacher in a classroom, although certainly there are some people who teach in classrooms who aren't super committed, most teachers who teach in classrooms are extremely committed people. They give themselves entirely over to their students and their students, when that happens, they really feel the love, they feel the commitment and they will follow that teacher. 
Shepherding is also an image that is used throughout the Bible. This is not something Jesus is making up. This is something that is used in the Old Testament. Prophets use the idea of shepherds and on and on. So shepherding is not something that Jesus is just pulling out of nowhere. There really is this idea of shepherd as relating not only to someone who is good, a good teacher, but someone who is a good king. And that's the, those are the two dots that Jesus is trying to connect here with shepherd. And why would being a good shepherd mean you are a good king? Why? You're right, David. Okay, so good job. Good job, everybody. So David was a shepherd. And David was a good shepherd. And David became a good king. And so there really is this idea within Judaism of David as the archetype of the best kind of king. They're looking for a new king in the line of David. That doesn't just mean hereditary. That means spiritual. And so, <coughs> excuse me, my gosh, not only is it so cold, it is so dry. Oh my goodness. Okay, pardon me. So David represents this shepherd king, and so Jesus is connecting those dots and saying that he is like that kind of shepherd king. Now, in addition to just being, <laughs> sorry, my throat, <coughs> pardon me, that's going to sound great on the stream, I'm sorry about that, um, Jesus also talks about the gate around being a shepherd, and so let's consider the realities of shepherding. I already noted that a shepherd would lead the sheep out into the middle of the wilderness. But at this point in time, shepherds are not leading their sheep back into some kind of highly secure barn or pen area. There would be a place where the shepherd would lead the sheep where they would sleep at night. But that kind of place would be relatively like relatively secure, but not super secure, it would probably be a little almost grotto against a mountain, almost half cave-like, with a little bit of a wall, something that would kind of keep the sheep in the particular space, but it wouldn't be a well-built, well-maintained, like working physical gate. And the shepherd would physically lay across the entry to that pen area because the shepherd becomes the gate. Live again? Good, then I'll stop talking about everybody online. There you go. Okay. <clears throat> we are back with our stream. Thank you so much for the pause. That was a very nice way to end um, section one. So we're going to pivot into section two and talk not only about being a shepherd, but about being a good shepherd. So look at chapter 10, verse 11. Jesus continues and takes this image to the next level. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand, who is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and runs away. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. The hired hand runs away because a hired hand does not care for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that do not belong to this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life in order to take it up again. 
No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord and have power to lay it down. And I have power to pick it up again. I have received this command from my father. This image sharply clarifies Jesus's mission. A shepherd has a certain list of responsibilities, but sometimes the shepherd only fulfills the majority and they fail when the real test comes. Sorry, my voice. (coughs) Hey, Bub, will you get some more water? Thank you. So a good shepherd actually... (laughs) I'm not sure if that's going to do anything. Thank you. I appreciate it. Um, (coughs) A good shepherd does something that a normal shepherd wouldn't do. So if we think about the idea, thank you, I think Bud's going to get some. If we think about the idea of a shepherd sleeping in the entry of the sheep pen, then what a shepherd is really doing is protecting the sheep from predators. Now, if you imagine a good shepherd, someone who is genuinely committed, thank you, someone who is genuinely committed to the sheep, will put their life on the line for the sheep. This is incredibly important for us. So we're just going to kind of pause here and say the distinction that Jesus is making here about a good shepherd and just a regular shepherd is incredibly important. Jesus is not talking about good and bad. That's not really what Jesus is saying. Jesus is talking about the kind of commitment to the sheep, that means the shepherd himself will put his own life on the line, thank you, in order to save the sheep. This is critically important for us to understand because we are beginning to frame, Jesus is beginning to frame his mission as a vocation that will then connect to what we know will happen at the end of his life. That is incredibly important for us to understand. And so, for the gospel writers, like John, this is exactly the way they understand Jesus' ministry. This kind of image of Jesus as a good shepherd who will lay down his life for the sheep is the way that the context of Jesus' death is understood by Christians over the first century and beyond. At this point... The people who are listening to Jesus do not get what is actually happening here. Jesus is still misunderstood because for Jesus, he understands the world as highly threatening. Jesus sees the threat of the world in a very significant way. And Jesus sees that what he is trying to do is lay a cross to become the gate for all the sheep who are God's people. The mission of Jesus is meant to save the people from the threat of the world. Now, at this point, I want to just pause and I want to do a little bit of a nerd study so that we know the difference about what Jesus is trying to do here. So the word good used here, when we think of the good shepherd, I don't know about you, but I have this image of Jesus with a lamb over his shoulder. Um, I think that oftentimes when people talk of the good shepherd, There is this sense of Jesus has the lamb over his shoulder protecting the people. That's the image I've always seen when talking about a good shepherd. That image is almost certainly, (coughs) excuse me, that image is almost certainly referencing Jesus going out and seeking the one sheep 
and leaving the 99. And it's kind of conflated with this idea of a good shepherd. It's not wrong to do that, but it's just, it's a little different. The word good here in Greek is kalos, K-A-L-O-S. Kalos is used throughout the Old and the New Testament. Now, before you ask the question, the Old Testament is not written in Greek, but remember that the Old Testament was translated into the Septuagint, and then that was created the Greek Old Testament that a lot of people would have known. So the Greek Old Testament translation uses kalos when the word itself means good or beautiful. And so this, the beauty of the goodness is what's really important here. It's easy for us to hear the word good and think of it as good, not bad. It's not actually the heart of this word in Greek. Kalos really means attractive, not physically attractive. That's not really it. But that complete attraction where the good shepherd calls to the sheep and the sheep are compelled to respond to the shepherd. It's that kind of attraction. There is this intensity about the response because the shepherd is such an attractive person, an attractive spirit, an attractive voice, you name it. You can fill in any words right here, but it goes beyond just good and bad. And it goes beyond beauty in the sense of anything physical. It is so compellingly attractive that when the sheep hear the voice of the good shepherd, they cannot help but respond. This kind of identity is really how Jesus is being rooted with the gospel writers. John wants us to understand that Jesus' love, his presence, his purpose is so compelling to everyone in the flock that it's nearly impossible for us to resist responding. Now, obviously, many people resist. And so then how does that resistance take shape? What Jesus is setting up here is kind of a, an either-or. Our response is either to God or to the world. And we see in the second half of chapter 10 that the worldly response can be so compelling that people may not hear the voice of the shepherd. Questions about the good shepherd before we continue with the rest of chapter 10. Yes. Yeah, okay, so that's a good question. The question really is about the verse that says, other sheep that do not belong to this fold. Is that John interpreting Jesus' purpose? Did Jesus actually say that? And if so, was Jesus antagonizing the leadership? The first question, whether Jesus said that or John inserted that or interpreted that, we don't really know. I think that certainly in the first century, there is a massive shift, and we see that in Acts. So those of you who are with me with Acts, if you've ever studied Acts, if you've never studied it, just go read it. It's pretty easily readable. 
the big idea of Acts is that there's a shift from only the Jewish people in Jerusalem to all people around the world. That's essentially the summary of Acts, that God's purpose through Jesus is actually to make his message global. Everybody's in. Nobody is excluded. That's a hard pill for the Jewish people to swallow. And it's not because the Jewish people are fundamentally exclusive. I don't think it's because of that. It's because at the time, they understand that the Messiah is a fulfillment of their prophecies. And so it kind of doesn't make a lot of sense if your starting place is, I'm Jewish, I know all the prophets, this man is fulfilling those prophets, taking the step toward for everyone doesn't actually make a lot of logical sense. Why would a non-Jewish person see the fulfillment of Jewish prophecy as mattering to them? That's a decent criticism. What Jesus is trying to do, and of course vis-a-vis what the gospel writers and the first century Jesus followers are trying to do, is make sure that Jesus' message is open for everyone. And so right here in this moment, whether Jesus said it or not, the spirit is there that Jesus' message is for everyone. Now, if we take a moment and think about what being God's chosen people means, it really means, it, what I should say is it was misunderstood to mean, for many, better than. That's not what it meant. It really meant responsible for. And so God's chosen people are responsible for knowing what God wants in the world and going and spreading that everywhere. What Jesus is doing is redirecting chosenness, not as something that makes you better, but that actually gives you a responsibility to go out and then spread the message. That's exactly what Christianity really becomes. Christians are not better than other people. Christians have a responsibility to actually spread the good news. The good news, the news that God is doing all of these things in the world, and we want everybody involved. And so any Christian that creates structures that exclude others is absolutely opposite of what Jesus wants. That's the hard pill for us. Because we tend to like to think that we have the right answer, that we are doing things the good, right way, and then you're either with us or you're not. No, those kinds of walls, those boundaries, those hurdles that we put up for people is exactly what Jesus is trying not to do. Jesus is saying all of those hurdles and all of those litmus tests and you name it that have been put up around you, no, 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 lower those. Get those out of the way because God loves you completely and wants you entirely. And so that kind of inclusion is not just what Jesus is doing. That kind of inclusion is our responsibility to join Jesus and to make a reality in the world. That's the kind of otherness that Jesus is talking about here. And of course, this is going to really annoy the religious leaders of the day because their entire economy is based on them being right and the other people being wrong. And Jesus is saying, you are very much not the kind of right you think you are. 
Jesus is doing something new and Jesus is doing something right. And whatever he's doing is going to put the religious leaders in a less preferential place. And that is not going over well. And we'll see just how well it's not going over later on in this chapter. Other questions or thoughts? All right, well, let's finish up the chapter. So at this point in the chapter, we pivot away from the things happening in response to the healing of the blind man. And now we are in a different point in time. So as I said, chapters are sometimes, they don't make a lot of sense. So up to this point, through the discourse of the shepherd and the good shepherd, this is all part of the story that happened in chapter 9. Here in the middle of chapter 10, we pivot. And now it's at some other point in time when Jesus is back during the festival of the dedication. So as we shift, we shift from the response of healing of the man born blind toward the Feast of Dedication. So what is the Feast of Dedication? We call this celebration Hanukkah. Hanukkah is a moment when the Jewish people rededicate themselves to God because the temple was rededicated to God. So here's just a moment of some history. So remember Alexander the Great and the Macedonian Empire. Alexander the Great with his Macedonian Empire goes about and conquers a whole bunch of land that includes Judea. When Alexander dies, one of his generals, Seleucus Nicator, takes over that area of the Macedonian Empire and establishes the Seleucid Empire. How many of us remember Seleucid Empire from Western Civ? Yes, thank you. Okay, so I saw some hands. Yep, the rest of you heard it, I promise. So the Seleucid Empire is running Judea a few hundred years before Jesus' life. The Jewish people who are under the thumb of first the Macedonians, then the Seleucids, this is all the Hellenistic um, influence that we know from history, they do not want these Hellenists in their religious space. And so even though the Macedonians didn't really do a whole lot with religious stuff, the Seleucids did. They took over the temple, they made the temple kind of a idolatry, they brought in all their Greek stuff and they were doing all the things and it was really, really bothered the Jewish people because this temple they had rebuilt after the exile was meant to be God's home on earth. And so even though the temple was not destroyed, the temple in spirit was completely defaced. There was a group of people who began to let a revolt called the Maccabeans. And so the Maccabeans led a revolt. This is meh, 150-ish years before Jesus is alive. The revolt started in the countryside and ended up coming into the city. They sort of pushed all the Seleucids out. It was not quite that simple, and it, there was a lot of mess back and forth for years. But essentially, they reclaimed control of the temple. They rededicated the temple, and that festival of dedication that we call Hanukkah is the point at which Jesus comes in for the second half of chapter 10. Questions about Hanukkah history and that sort of stuff to know where we are. Look, we learned something today. Okay, verse 22. 
At that time, the festival of the dedication took place in Jerusalem. It was winter, and of course that's why Hanukkah is kind of December-ish. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Jesus answered, I have told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name testify to me, but you do not believe because you do not belong to my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. What my Father has given me is greater than all else, and no one can snatch it out of my Father's hand. The Father and I are one. The Jews took up stones against him to stone him. Jesus replied, I have shown you many good works from my Father. For which of these are you going to stone me? And the Jews answered, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, though only a human being, are making yourself God. Jesus answered, Is it not written in your law, I said you are God's? If those to whom the word of God came were called gods, and the scripture cannot be annulled, can you say that the one whom the Father has sanctified and sent into the world is blaspheming? Because I said, I am God's son. If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Then they tried to arrest him again, but he escaped from their hands. We'll stop there. So it's natural for us to think of Jesus as the good shepherd and to see beauty, that compelling response. But this image of Jesus as the good shepherd did not work for everybody. We see here in this festival that the religious leaders continue to resist what Jesus is doing. And beyond just resistance, do not ever forget that the story of the good shepherd in John's gospel ends with the people trying to stone Jesus. Okay, so we often think of the story of the Good Shepherd as this beautiful, lovely image. So, so nice. The people tried to stone him because of the story of the Good Shepherd. So if we ever think that the story of the Good Shepherd is something nice, we've really kind of missed the point. That story of the Good Shepherd is meant to be this visceral resistance to violence. And so Jesus is taking up a position that pits him against the religious and the political authority of the day. The leaders, once again here, are accusing him of blasphemy. And it's that blasphemy that causes them to take up stones to try to stone him. Now, Jesus recalls his reference to being the shepherd of the sheep here in this section because he is trying to help support the people who are following him. Now, remember that as Jesus goes about teaching and healing, there are people who are gathering around him. Some of them, like the ones we call apostles, those, those disciples now, apostles later, they are committed in a pretty high way. The majority of the people following Jesus around, they like what they see, but commitment is a little strong. And as Jesus goes into places like the temple on a feast day and is threatened because of his blasphemy with being stoned, if you were one of those people who were kind of liking Jesus, like, you know, he's talking some good stuff and he healed that blind man, so he must be something good. But what? The religious leaders are accusing him of blasphemy and they're going to stone him? You could very easily say, 
that, I'm, this is not worth that, okay? Like, I'm good. I'm going to go back home, and I've had a nice time. He seems like a good guy, but I'm out. So what Jesus does in this moment is he is trying to reach out and really pull in the people who are kind of in orbit. They're sort of on the periphery. They are liking what they're seeing, but they've not quite committed. Jesus says that there is life beyond our physical death. Those who hear the voice of the shepherd, those who respond to the voice of the shepherd are responding to God, and those who believe, those who respond with that belief, they receive eternal life. They are saved from anything that the world could do. This is a very powerful thing to say. Jesus is, in a sense, answering the concerns that the crowd who like him have before they actually ask the question. Because if they're watching him potentially get stoned, then Jesus needs to explain to them that, essentially, the world cannot do anything to me that goes above and beyond the promise God has made. God promises to save. God promises eternal life. That happens regardless of what you experience in this physical life, in this earthly life. What Jesus is really getting at here goes way beyond just a nice image. What Jesus is really getting at here is his mission. It is his purpose. It is his vocation. In fact, as he's trying to take the sting of death away, he's acknowledging that everyone will die. And perhaps, like a good shepherd, his death may end in violence. So he's saying it may not be that I just die of old age. It might very well be, like a good shepherd, protecting the sheep from the predators, death comes violently. Even then, even then, God will not take away the promise of eternal life. This is a very powerful moment that Jesus says to his followers, this is not going to end the way you want it to. My life will not end the way you wish it to end. And yet even so, even with the violence of the cross, God's purpose, Jesus's vocation, will be fulfilled. With that kind of clarity, Jesus begins to differentiate what following him is all about. We are coming, in chapter 10, to the very end of the first half of John's gospel, where Jesus has gone about collecting all the people. As we get to the next chapter, Jesus' healing, his miracles, his signs, will actually now be the straw that breaks the camel's back. The next sign we get is the raising of Lazarus. And regardless of someone who is crippled walking, even someone born blind seeing, someone multiple days dead walking out of their crypt, that they cannot stand. And so as Jesus is getting closer and closer to the moment that will change everything, he is becoming more and more aggressive 
in saying to those who are seeking after him to follow him that it's not going to be the kind of good that you expect. This good is something totally different, and you need to be prepared for it. I think I'll pause there and see any questions or thoughts. Does this sound like the good shepherd you learned about in Sunday school? No? How would you teach this story to kids? I actually think that the fundamental teaching here is that death is not the end. And so in my experience, the best thing you can do with children, and I say children, and I don't mean that as like lesser humans because I think that's all of us, I think the most important idea to be taught here is that our physical death is not something we should fear and it's not the end. For children who probably haven't experienced physical death, or at least if they have, I mean, most people try to hide that kind of stuff from kids, which is not a good idea, by the way, so don't do that. Um, kids can handle death a lot better than you can, so just let them know all the stuff. For children, I think what we do here is something along the lines of like either a catechesis or a godly play where death is something that they play with. And the idea, I can remember with my own kids, the physically putting Jesus in the tomb and then taking him out at Easter gave them the capacity to understand that death is just part of the journey. It's not the end because they see that Jesus died and then Jesus came out of the tomb. And so for them, the reality of death being just a step in the path toward eternal life is very tangible. Now, as with all people, there's a point at which the innocence of childhood and taking Jesus out of the tomb becomes tangible in some way and it can become scary. And most of that scariness comes from adults who are taught to fear death. I mean, think of all the ways in which we structure our world to try to prevent death. Even if we say you don't need to be afraid of death, we sure don't act like it because we will do anything possible to not die. And that includes ending our life, but not dying. I mean, how many times do we talk about doing heroic measures or something like that where life has ended and yet the person is still not dead. And what kind of, we talk of quality of life, that's the kind of issue here is dying is not the, not the worst thing. Dying's not the end. We say this in our funeral services, but to actually believe it is very different. And you can ask any of the priests here, we know whether people believe that the moment they come into our offices to talk about a funeral plan. Because there are people who walk in and they understand that it is a celebration of a life lived and the hope for what is to come versus this tragedy. And it's not to say that we're not sad when we lose someone we love. Of course we are. Sad, though, 
can be held together with hope. And they're not mutually exclusive. Despair is very different than sadness. And so for us to begin to play out the differentiation of those things now, when we may not be in the moment of crisis, is very important. And so for children in particular, before they are in a moment of crisis, let them play with the ideas. Not talking about death with children does them no favors because they have the capacity to not fear death. Once they cross a line and they begin to fear, then it's much harder to have that kind of thoughtful conversation. And so the way to teach children about this, I think, is to talk very plainly about death and how death is not something to be afraid of. Other thoughts or questions? Well then, go forth and do not be afraid. <laughs> See you next week. Bye.